welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is brought to you by our friends over at Team Builder. Team Builder is the premier strength and conditioning app for baseball teams. Team Builder is used by 11 organizations in Major League Baseball. Baseball coaches from travel to college teams can write training programs or choose from pre-designed training programs built by professional baseball strength coaches, all for as low as $50 per month. Personally, we used Team Builder when I was coaching at Western Illinois University. It's very user-friendly and streamlines all of your programming. It also makes training sessions on or off campus easier to access for your athletes. Right now, when you start a 14-day free trial, use promo code ABCA to receive four free baseball-specific strength and conditioning training programs directly into your account. In just one click, you can set your team up with a professionally designed strength training program delivered to every player's mobile app every single day. You can reach out to Hewitt Tomlin over at Team Builder on Twitter at T-E-A-M B-U-I-L-D-R, or on their website at www.teambuilder.com or via phone at 240-528-7848 and let Hewitt know that the ABCA sent you. And now on to the ABCA podcast. Next on the ABCA podcast is Alan Jager. Alan needs no introduction, but I also want to make sure that if we have people listening in who don't know Alan, that they get a proper introduction to him. He's one of the forefathers of the modern-day warm-up, training, and throwing. My first introduction to Alan was in the early 2000s with the book Getting Focused, Staying Focused. I felt like I'd found a kindred spirit when it came to developing players' minds to help their performance, but also their mental health away from the playing field. Alan founded Jager Sports on the principle that athletes need to develop their, both their physical and mental skills in order to be successful in game situations. Besides getting focused, staying focused, he also developed the DVD Thrive on Throwing, Jager Sports' signature arm health, strength and conditioning throwing program. Along with Alan's passion for yoga, this book and DVD serve as a driving force behind all of Jager Sports' training programs. He's also the author of our most important piece of throwing literature we have in the year-round training throwing manual. His J-bands can be seen at any baseball field in the world from the pro level down to youth baseball. He's also been very active with the ABCA. He's donated many hours of his time to the pitching hot stove at the ABCA convention and any corner of the ABCA convention talking shop. Let's welcome Alan to the podcast. Here with Alan Jager, uh, one of the forefathers of modern day training and throwing. Uh, Alan, I can't thank you enough. You and I have had a lot of conversations about arm health, so I am extremely excited to dive into everything today. Well, number one, man, you know, thanks for having me on, obviously. Um, number two, um, the ABCA, and I'm, I'm, no one paid me actually to, to plug this, uh, has been a, a special representation a uh, special place to be at, and um, just doing anything involving the ABCA is, is absolutely a treat and an honor. So just up front, I want to make sure I, I'm, I share that that with you, buddy. Well, I appreciate it. We, you know, we feel like we're trying to provide content uh, that's going to help coaches, players, 
uh, youth coaches, parents, um, just feel like we help on a, on a variety of different levels with baseball. So what are your biggest takeaways from the coronavirus? Well, listen, I mean, without getting too personal, you know, I went through a, a pretty tough month of March myself. I, I, I was under the weather. I didn't have any COVID symptoms, but, um, you know, it was a very stressful time and, you know, obviously quarantining, staying at home. Um, so I think something, you know, we talked a little bit about off air, so to speak, is just, um, you know, everybody has their own way of dealing with it. And I think the main thing I, I'm learning as I'm, I've had to deal with some challenges is, um, A, you got to get back to the process um, and just trust. Um, and, and B, you got to really try to stay positive and, um, and really start to, you know, we talked earlier about the word gratitude and, and find gratitude in life, I mean, gratitude and, and small things, you know, this breath, um, going out for a walk, luckily the tennis courts opened up, which was a huge outlet for me, you know, these Zoom sessions. And also for me, it was, um, it was really meaningful that I was tapping into, you know, I've, I've been used to teaching and coaching my whole life. Um, not that I'm not a, a listener and, and, and not trying to learn myself, but it was really, it really meant a lot. I was able to lean on people you know, for support and, and guidance. And I think that would be maybe another huge takeaway is, um, is share, speak up if you're going through a tough time, um, if you're struggling at all. Our, our VP actually, Chad McCarney, has a nonprofit, um, Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression, and um, it's a free resource. So I think from that point of view, I would say, you know, how important it is from a mental health, physical health point of view, um, but I think from a baseball point of view, which really was not as much on my mind at the time, to be honest. Um, yeah, I just think it was a, a, an opportunity, as you know, whether it's stuff like this, podcasts or Zoom sessions, um, you know, to still stay in touch and, and try to use this time to your advantage to do the best you can to stay in shape, train and develop. But I think, I guess the, the short answer, which is not short, is... Uh, first and foremost, is to do what you can to really focus on your mental health and well-being and physical health and well-being. What helped you kind of get through the over the hump there? You know, did you start to feel better physically? Were you starting to feel better mentally? Or was it some of the conversations you were having with yourself or other people? Like, what helped you kind of push through? Because I think we all struggled in the initial of, you know, can we go outside? You know, can do I have to stay inside? You know, what were some of the things that kind of helped you get over the hump? You know, number one, honestly, it was just feeling better. I, I had something. I don't know what it was, but I'm going to call it some type of a virus or bacteria. Uh, it really felt like mono. I was mostly just tired and, and, and just sort of feeling off. But I didn't have any other real bad symptoms. But I'd say, you know, it took about four weeks for me to start feeling that I was over whatever I had. And I'll tell you, man, that's when you start looking at the little things in life. Just getting outside and going for a walk um, was a big deal. Um, you know, I, I started eating. I, I'll tell you, I went on a diet that I wasn't planning on going on, but I, I cut out basically sugar, gluten, and dairy, and it wasn't necessarily by choice, but I I wanted to make sure my immune system was strong and whatever I had, I wanted it to be as short of a ride as possible. And through that process, actually, um, I lost quite a bit of weight. And I think so part of what helped me was starting to eat normally. Not, not that I really, I still to this day, uh, have very modified amounts of that, but, um, 
Yeah, the you know the, the like you, like I said earlier, the the connection with people, starting to be you know have the energy to, you know, it's sad, but I was really in a place where I was tired and not feeling well. I didn't really want to talk to people because I didn't have a lot of energy, quite honestly. And um, so I think that helped starting to you know connect. Look, connection, as we both know, is one of the true keys to life. And and I felt like connecting and again having people as incredible listeners that were holding space um really really powerful so um i think those were those are some of the keys what's some of the feedback you've gotten with the athletes and the coaches that you you work with how they've handled everything i think the the younger generation the kids for the most part other than you know cabin fever um and look i haven't had a great pulse on it to be honest just because i was sort of in a cave for a while but you know, from what little I can see and, and the guys I've spoken with um, or texted with, it just, it feels like that everybody's doing a good job. I and mean, I'd say this mostly from Twitter and stuff like that. I think people have done a good job of, of being creative with how do I stay in shape when I'm quarantining and, you know, stuff I'm sure you've seen as well. And I think everybody in the back of their mind, especially if you're a professional player before the season was canceled, you know, you had to really stay in shape. Um, obviously, anybody that's going to have a possibility of either being in the big leagues or on the taxi squad. But I think the trickiest part, which I'm sure we'll delve, in, delve into, is, you know, with the high school and college seasons and travel ball and stuff like that, obviously being shut down quickly. Um, not that guys, again, weren't the same idea, figuring out ways to stay in shape. But I think that is such an, a, uh, an ambiguous piece because... What are you preparing for? Or what are you training for? Or when sure maybe you could just rest because it's got pretty clear, I think, early on that nothing was probably going to happen for a month or two or three or four. And at that point, it is an unknown. It's like, okay, well, do I just so I think that I think because people have time, I, I think the kids natural drive to play so to speak came out so I, I would guess that most people did a pretty good job of, of just staying in shape the one thing I will say is this and I did I posted a video on Twitter because at one point it hit me so hard about six weeks ago that with the lack of maybe there maybe kids are staying pretty active with training per se but as we know there was no real competition going on unless maybe between family members or maybe your friend that lived down the street and I did a, I posted a video actually, um, and this came from a really raw, but just strong gut feeling place, which is do visualization right now on competition, meaning I don't care if you're a pitcher facing a hitter or a hitter facing a pitcher or getting a secondary lead at first to steal a base, you know, get in the heat of the action. Because one thing that I started noticing, maybe because of what I went through from being sort of dormant was you know, we, we get in a state where we've competed our whole lives, whether it's basketball, football, golf, obviously baseball, we're, we're ping pong, pool. Like there's always a competition going on. And I feel like that was another you know thing that we were starting to really disconnect, maybe atrophy a bit from is the connection to that true feeling of being in a game situation with consequences at stake, even though we talk about the process. And so anyway, that, that was another big piece that I really, which still to this day, because there still isn't 
there's there's more but anyway i think visualization was another big piece and I do want to plug, um, you're in Eric Cressy's, uh, Eric Cressy's Elite Baseball Development Podcast. You guys recorded September 10th, uh, 2019, and it's called Building a Better Throwing Program. And for anybody that hasn't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. I think it's one of the best throwing podcasts that's been recorded. I got a chance to listen to it uh, at our Bardstormers event at Northern Illinois in DeKalb. I was in the hotel on a Friday night and I listen to it, and I do feel like it's the best podcast out there for throwing. So anybody that hasn't listened to that, please go back and, and listen to that. What do you feel like are the biggest dangers now? You know, it, things are clearing up, so youth's going. Hopefully pro baseball gets going here soon. What do you feel like are the biggest dangers now that we are going to get back into competitive mode? Yeah, and by the way, thank you so much. Um, I, and I'm serious. Like I I'm here to help. Like I, I don't care if it's my podcast. Like there's great podcasts out there, and I do feel like it's one of the best ones that's that's out there from a, a throwing program standpoint. I think you guys hit everything that anybody would want to know about throwing. I think you guys hit all the points that that need to be hit. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it, and it also shows you, you know, how selfless you are and growth mindset oriented you are. Because I feel the same way. I mean, at the end of the day, if John down the street has a better way of teaching X. You listen to John. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about the kids. It's about development. Um, it's about the highest good, as, as I know you know. So um, that question is is crucial, Ryan, because really, if we boil this down to, I think, one crucial element, it's really going to be what's the most important thing to, to keep in mind regarding not putting yourself in a position to be hurt whether you're a little league player or you're a minor league player right now sitting around not knowing when you're going to be, you know, called upon to, you know, have some action, so to speak, in a game situation or a bullpen. And, uh, and I guess I'd make it as simple as this um, little league kids that, you know, 12 and under, maybe 10 and under, maybe don't need more than two weeks, maybe three weeks to be safe. I would say three weeks knowing me, but knowing us, our program, but um I would just say, just plan on it's a minimum of four to five weeks before your first live bullpen, not not first live batting practice, not first inning of fifth or 15 pitches. I'm talking to make this so clear in black and white that there's no gray area <laughs> that you're going to need, and maybe you can get in shape in three weeks of long toss and arm conditioning and volume building and progression, all that good stuff. Maybe your first bullpen could happen in the fourth week because you've been throwing a little bit the last week or two, or you've been throwing a lot the last few weeks, and maybe it'll come faster. But my philosophy is this, and this is Jager Sports' our whole philosophy. If you start from scratch, so let's make it clear that we're talking about players starting from scratch. Well, first of all, I would hope that they would reverse engineer two, two weeks of that to three weeks to just be doing some movement, some arm care, some stretching, range of motion, full body movement to band work, what have you. But let's just say in addition to that, it takes about three weeks for, let's say someone high school enough to get out to their max distance. If they're throwing, by the way, six to seven times a week, which we recommend. That's just to get to the stretching out phase. They're not even right into the high intent. That's only arc uphill throwing. We call it massage throwing, relaxation throwing. Yeah, you're, if you're getting out to 300 feet, you're using some intent, 
But the idea is you're still throwing with what we call a stretching mentality. So then maybe week four after you're fully stretched out and you've built up some incredible volume, which is key to endurance, key to conditioning and key to recovery. These are all big buzzwords with arm health. Well, maybe week four now you're ready for like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, what we would call maybe 80 to 90% pull down. So you're still not even pulling down full intent, even though you're arguably pretty close to, to being able to do it. We just want to buffer one more week of getting the intent throws going um, at maybe 80, 90%. So now week five, I would say you are ready for, you know, maybe a real heavy Monday, Friday pull down session, maybe a medium pull down session on Wednesday. And then Monday, Fridays now all of a sudden become your 10 days so that now you're High intent throws off the mound, even if it's only 15, is coming off the back of a good pull down session where you're prepped. And so there's the five weeks. So now we're through, let's say, two pens. And now we can argue safely that week six, you could throw a live inning, you could throw 15 pitches, and you're safely there. But we've just really talked about five weeks, as you know. And we've talked really even about a two to three week active rest buildup. So we're kind of in a seven to eight week mark, which might freak people out at first, but that's how serious this is. That, that's the bottom line. Like, do you want your arm to be fully prepared for high intent throws or not? And if you do, at least for someone, I'd say high school and above, you're, you're looking at seven to eight weeks. And I, I loved when the year round throwing manual came out. I stole everything in there. Uh, and, and well, it made sense, you know, your, your high volume days, your pull down days, those need to be the competitive days. And I wanted to ask you that you, you reissued, came out with a pro year round throwing manual. What are the differences between that and then the year round throwing manual that you, you first put out? I, I'm so glad you asked. Um, so the year round throwing manual, we, we did, First and foremost, just to piece together the whole year, of course, there's a lot to navigate. Um, in the old days, it was pretty much in, in the fall, you played with your high school team, maybe scout ball, um, and then you kind of ran into your spring season. So you kind of had a, a continuum from, let's just say, September to June. There wasn't much to think about. And then, of course, starting whatever, 15 plus years ago, um, Travel, well, travel teams have been around longer than that, I guess, and showcases. But whenever it started, you know, the fall then became uh, an opportunity, obviously, and the summer now, of course, for travel teams and fall and um, and showcase, excuse me, showcases. And I had to learn, and I really learned this about six years ago, which is why I wanted to put the, the last couple pieces because I'd already done an, an off-season training program that was an article in collegiate baseball. I did an in-season maintenance that I believe was also an article in collegiate baseball. But I had a player that was prepping for the draft and I had him for really like the May before the draft. So I had him for technically 13 months. And my job with him through his advisor was to make sure that he was cycled at all the right times. So that means cycled for the summer showcases, right? But then we had to make sure we rested him or deloaded him to where he was then able to cruise let's say through the fall and then maybe you know build up toward the end of the fall with some, some live innings against uh, his team or scout ball and then there was that break between like thanksgiving and then january and that was sort of a gray area ambiguous area and we had to kind of play with that and then obviously we had to figure out well how is he going to 
how is he going to be able to peak out, so to speak, from March to June 2nd, which ironically his last, <laughs> his last pre-draft workout was in Milwaukee at their stadium. And his last pitch was the hardest pitch he had thrown, I believe, the entire year, which was 97. And he's a, he's a left-hander. And that's the team that ended up drafting him, by the way. Just a quick kind of fun side note to that story. And so in a way, I felt gratified in that not only did the system work over 13 months, but in, in a weird way. And look, it didn't mean it had to be his last pitch, the hardest pitch, because it sounds almost like uh, an infomercial now. But as it worked out, his advisor, I believe, was at the workout. That's the only reason I know. Um, but whether it was his hardest pitch or not, the point is this, is that he really – um, we navigated him well for those 13 months. And so the manual was my way of tying together these sort of ambiguous areas. Like the fall, there's a lot of stopping and starting. There's the, there's the whole six week period between Thanksgiving and return to school in January. And that includes the colleges. So and that's, that's the hardest time for the college side is, is when they're away from you, like making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing to, to get ready to go out and throw and compete when they get back million percent and so and i'll and it's funny at the abca i'm going to plug the abca um well no maybe it didn't happen at the abc but i know butch thompson brought it up at, at his breakout after his speech but but butch and i had talked this might have been right around the same time as this this player that i was working with and, and just butch and i just we started talking about that november that Thanksgiving to January and, and Butch is everybody knows so sharp and good with all this stuff. But I think like you just said, Ryan, it was that feeling of them being away. And so we were massaging it and playing around with it. And I think really between that piece, navigating the summer, which is a new animal compared to 15, 20 years ago. And what happened is, is I just, it really birthed the manual because I felt like with uh, the player I was working with, um, this talk with Butch about really hammering that that kind of four to six week gray area, as you know. And look, I just felt like I wanted there to be something to where if a coach, player, parent, agent picked up, had a question about, well, it's July 8th or it's November 12th. Or I, I just finished up three months here, but I don't have a showcase for a month, but I just finished up a long season. What, so I kind of wanted to get in the head of, anybody who would say, well, this is sort of a weird set of scenarios of variables. Like, do I do this? Should I rest? Um, I also wanted players to be aware of the, like I said earlier, the stopping and starting could be such a dangerous piece because you don't know, like, do I stay in shape? Do I ramp down? Do I build up? Do I take a week off and rest and then just try to get back in shape? Cause I'm only throwing an inning or two. And so I think my goal of the manual was to just make sure that if you, no matter where you are in the year, if you pick your target dates or you look backward a month or two, what got you here, the idea is the formula is going to work really well. The pro manual, ironically, I wrote because unlike the year on throwing manual, I started talking with Randy Sullivan around this time and we really, uh, Florida baseball ranch and, and Randy and I've had so many good talks over the years. And, uh, and he and I, and I asked him and we were talking a lot about, I got this concept from him about deloading. And I, I know after you play a sport, you should stretch and it really should help you the next day with recovery. 
So that part I think is pretty straightforward, but the way he really talked about after a long pro season that <clears throat> you shouldn't stop, even though you're tired, you should, you know, deload with some long toss or medium long toss, even light pens a couple times a week, deloading maybe over about a three week period. And man, that hit me hard. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring that piece into the end of the pro season I wanted to get deloading in, which is not in the year on throwing manual, but also I did a podcast with Robbie Rowland on rehab. I did uh, the podcast with Eric Cressy, as we just mentioned. And so what I wanted to do is have a manual that was only digital and I wanted it to be free because what I wanted, I wanted people to have access to it to where even if they weren't a professional player, they were able to get some of these other concepts like deloading. Um, rehab protocols. Um, and also I wanted, I, I guess for me, I've been doing my best over the years to get as much information out as I can to the baseball community. And I just, I guess I wanted also that the, the world to see like, okay, for a pro schedule, not the world, maybe this was more for the professional guys, but I wanted them to see that there was not going to be this two or three month gap anymore, Ryan, which I think is what hit me hard. You know, one of, uh, one of my favorite lines I've gotten from Randy over the years is um, the body is meant to move. Yes. Or, and so, and I always had a rubber arm. And I think one of the reasons I had a rubber arm is I threw things all the time. And so I've been sort of moving more and more away from stopping throwing. And it doesn't look, you can go into a mode for a month where you're throwing three times a week out to 60 feet and doing some light band work, that could be quote unquote, your rest. I'm not saying you can't take four weeks off or six weeks off and, and do nothing. If you've had a long six, seven month season, but I hope you had a deload for stars after the season. So you didn't shock your body. And I hope if you did take that time off that you have a good month to start to reload with arm care and active rest again, before you start your throwing program. But anyway, man, this is somebody hard. that hasn't seen yeah. it. What what is the recommended deload? Because I think about the college guy that gets drafted. So the college guy that gets drafted has probably been throwing since Thanksgiving. They go through their entire season. They get drafted. They throw their entire summer. Then sometimes they go to instructs. So they're gonna throw through September. What what's a recommended deload then in October when they're done with instructs in September? So I'm going to go based on what Randy and I talked about. Um, I don't know if there's a proven answer yet, but this is what I threw at Randy and he loved, he, he, he agreed. He thought this was about right, you know, in his words. So what I came up with was sort of a three week deload. Technically it could be a four week one, but at least three weeks where the week after as tired as you may be. And we're not talking about someone obviously hurt, <laughs> you know, in, inflamed the wrong way, but you know, I, it's not a perfect science, but I think in, in the pro manual I wrote maybe four days a week, you go out the, that, that next week and you, <clears throat> I don't know if I actually use this percentage, but I might've used numbers, but it might've been, you know, go out to 75% of your distance. So if you're a 300 foot guy, you go out to 225 per se. Um, maybe pen at 80% or 75%, same idea, um, maybe twice a week. And I kind of built that over a three week period and, and, it, and, and Randy resonated with that. Um, 
And so I don't know the answer, Ryan, to be honest with you, but I would just say, look, error on the error on the side of at least, which sounds like a long time, but you know, and, and by the way, week two, now you're maybe down to 175, 180, uh, maybe one pen, maybe two really light pens. By week three, you could be at four days a week of um, you know, 90 feet. Uh, and then technically, you could probably do a fourth week, three days a week at 60 feet. And then in a weird kind of way, I almost feel like three times a week at 60 feet is what I would call rest now. Like, not active rest, like rest. That's doing nothing, even though you're doing something. Now, again, worst case scenario, if you feel like you need to at some point get away, shut everything down, take a month off. The bottom line is this, always leave yourself a month to start building up, not throwing yet, just your arm care, your range of motion, your stretching, your body stretching. Um, so anyway, it's I guess just like, it, it's much easier to stay in shape than it is to get into shape. And it's the same thing in the weight room. And, you know, we've come so far with the strength siding, strength training side of things. It's the same thing with the strength training side. They deload, you know, they, they have some intense time period and the periodization of a strength training program. You're going to have deload phases set in there depending on the time of the year, but you're not, not lifting. Like that's the thing. The deload is you're still lifting. You're just lifting less. Yeah. And I, look, I, I, I am happy. Like you said something earlier about punting. I cannot tell you how quickly I would I punt to Eric Cressy, to Ron Wilford, to Kyle Bodie, you know, to Randy Sullivan, to Nate Yeske, Scott Brown, Butch Ty like I'll punt quickly to anybody out there in the world because I just feel like they're they have expertise in areas that I, I've never even sniffed. Well, so. and we're a community, it's a baseball community, like we're all in the baseball community. No matter youth youth to pro, we're all in the baseball community. So there's some guys out there that know a little bit more here and there. You should be able to reach out to everybody in our community. I think that's the best thing about our community is you can reach out to everybody in the baseball community and they're going to respond back to you. I don't care what level of baseball we are. 100%. And that's the other cool thing is all the people I just named, and I'm sure I could have named – a hundred more people, a thousand more people. It's, I mean, people about our community. That is one of the coolest things about the baseball world. And I, I have to assume it's in the other sports too, but I, and that kind of brings it back to the ABCA in a way too. It, it, it's really heartwarming to be honest with you. It, it, it's such a sweet, special thing about our, our, culture. Well, I know? think about you after the hot stove, the pitching hot stove, you know, and and I put that in the intro. So like I, I give you kudos in the intro because the pitching hot stove, you'll be tucked off in a corner doing mental stuff till one, two o'clock in the morning, as long as somebody wants to sit there and talk to you or even in the exhibit area or even somewhere while the convention's going on after the hot stove, like you're always talking to someone and you see that out of the guys that, that are the best that we have in our profession. You're one of the best guys that we have in our profession from a throwing and training standpoint. You're off talking to whoever and just it's gratifying to see that because then when you do have a 20-year-old coach that just got into it for the first time and has a positive interaction with you, when they're older, they're going to pay it forward 
to the 20 year old when, when they're older because of those interactions. Couldn't agree with you more, man. And thank you for the kind words. Um, but I, I have said this a million times and I mean it, some of the best conversations I have had are in a stairwell <laughs> at one in the morning or, you know, not necessarily an elevator ride. That's pretty quickly, but maybe it starts there. Um, I remember one time I had a couple of pitching characters because I was really short of time, but I, I just wanted to be available to them. And I said to them, hey, can you just walk with me to my room? I mean, literally, I had to get changed for dinner. Um, so they walked with me to my room in the interim of me getting changed, you know, and then walking back wherever I walked, there was like a, let's say it was a 30 minute gap. It was great. And we got to hammer a bunch of stuff. And, and look, I, I was a benefactor of it as well. We all are, you know, when I was younger, um, it, the, the ability of somebody, I remember talking to Ken Revisa who rest his soul, what a, what a, what an all timer. And, um, you know, Ken, you could walk up to Ken and he'll get, you know, same thing. One, in fact, one, another one of my favorite images I've ever seen in, is from an ABCA show. Someone took a photo, I think it was Indianapolis. And it was like midnight. And it was because it was that back area where it was sort of hard to find. And Ken was sitting with a chair with a bunch of coaches. There were like 25 coaches in a semicircle. And there were, you could tell no one else was around. Like it was late at night. And it was really, it was an artsy photo. Someone from above took that shot. And uh, so look, man, we're, that, that's, the, that's the beauty of life, right? Is that we, we pay it forward. And look, man, we've, we've all been there. We've all been brand new, green, you know, wanting to learn and, and, and contribute to the game. And people, we've had so many people help us out. And so, as you said, a high school kid could shoot me an email and just say, hey, I'm doing this project on uh, arm care. Can you answer the following six questions? And I'll write him back. And he'll say, man, I can't believe you you responded. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean that you can't believe it? Like you, you took the time and effort to get my email or whatever, reach out to me. I'm honored. Are you kidding me? You reached out to me. You were interested in my opinion. And, uh, and look, man, I, I just think it's, it's why we teach. We love sharing and we've, we've, we've been fortunate to be on the other side. All right, 20 year anniversary of getting focused, staying focused came out in 2000. So, you know, what are the differences between 2000 and now 2020 for Jager Sports? Wow. Okay. Now I got to tell you something. You have a copy that was a reissue. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I used that book. I did. Uh, when I was at Iowa, I used Getting Focused, Staying Focused. I loved it because you and I are kindred spirits when it comes to Zen Buddhism, Taoism. We are. And so it, it, the book spoke to me, and I did take inserts of that and give it to our guys at Iowa because I, I loved it. It spoke my language from uh, mental aspects and, and how to be in flow state and just – all the things that helped me as a player that helped me as a coach help players like all those it all spoke to me so you know what are the biggest differences between 2000 and 2020 yeah wow that's a what a question well so i was joking about the reissue because the book came out in 94. <laughs> google, I'll, have to, I'll have to adjust that on google because when i googled what year did did the book come out it popped up 2000 on me 
Yeah, it probably was a reissue, but hey, you know what? It made me six years older, so now I'm 37 instead of 31. <laughs> um, you know what's interesting, man? I love that question because it it brings me back to my my real roots. You know, even though I was a pitching coach at a junior college and we we long tossed, you know, we went to the football field. That was just that's always been part of me. But um, the book was really my first um entrance if you will hey let me ask you who who handed long toss to you because i got long toss from my dad my dad was a big believer in long toss so even when i was a kid in the 80s i got long toss handed to me from my dad so that's how i learned about long tossing who handed long toss to you i would say it was i don't i don't remember i feel like it was innate but i will say this i at my first year in junior college, our ace, who, you know, I, I've, I had a lot of respect for him and learned from him just watching him. And we went out one day and we, we were airing it out. And then on the way in, um, he was the first person I ever remember saying this, which is a huge piece to long toss. When we were coming back in, I'm sure I was pulling down with authority because it's, 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 it's instinctive. Like it's, it's innate. We played hot potato. I mean, that's what we called it in little league was hot potato where you're going to try to throw it as hard as you could through, through your partner. Right. But what I was doing probably on some level, maybe at least from, let's say we got out to 300 feet from 300 feet to 200 feet. I'm assuming I was out that far. I I had a, I had whatever it was. I, that, that first hundred feet, maybe I wasn't pulling through, well, I can tell you this, when I got to Cal State North, which was my partner, Jim Batcher, I was throwing pretty far. <laughs> you know, he and I were airing it off pretty well. So um, he said, when you come back in, he said, maintain the same strength or what we call nowadays intent of your furthest throw. So I wasn't pulling down as well as I could. I probably was pulling down okay. And, and so that is a very important piece because um, – a lot of times we get questions on why my velocity isn't translating to the mound. And I can almost tell you for a fact, like 97% of the time, it's because they're training their arm. They're getting the long toss in great. They're getting all the arm conditioning, health, endurance, feel, athleticism, all that good stuff. But they're probably decelerating a little bit because they don't want to throw the ball over their partner's heads or they want to play catch and make it look good or they're not aware it's an art form to maintain the intent of your furthest throw. It's not easy to do unless you've been told or trained to do it. So long story short is he, he made that point to me. And that was my first year in junior college. And so I really learned that. But back to the book, um, I would say, first of all, the core is the core. There's nothing about the core that to me is, is changed, meaning... Um, meditation um you know we use the word maybe process now maybe not as much in the book but the book was all about the moment you know as you said you know zen and taoism were the two major influences um for me and so i I think one thing i've i've spoken a lot about the last five six years that might be in addition to the book is what i call the default meaning if the zone state per se is this flow that's always happening, but our minds, uh, 
there's a study out there based on Dr. Shauna Shapiro, I believe that we have, or she's done the research, like 70,000 thoughts a day or something yes. like that. So the zone is, I, I, I use this analogy a lot. The zone is a thoughtless state, as you know. So if it's no thought, but our mind has all, has all this practice of thinking, we, we have built a very strong, I mean, our mind is just used to defaulting to thoughts. It's normal, right? It's habituated, right? It's, it's, it's just part of what our, how our, our, you can say our neural pathways work. So we're trying to get to a no thought place, but yet we have all this practice at thinking. So we, we've, our minds have learned to default to this because it's normal. And I'm not even judging that as right or wrong, by the way, I'm just saying that that is just what the mind has been trained to do, but we want it to default to a no thought place. And so to me, that is sort of the rub. Well, if you want to be in a no thought place, an instinctive place and be in a flow state, but we have all this practice from the time we were, let's say two or three years old when we knew what our name was, right? So we started creating more of this duality and me versus you and this versus that or what, how, whatever the hour the mind starts to think about it. And so I would say that that's the main takeaway now is I really, I really want people to understand that, yes, it's good to stay in the moment, to be process oriented, to trust the process. It's good psychologically, it's good strategically, but if, in my opinion, if you don't have a practice to sort of undo, unlearn, change the default system that has so much practice, it's hard to expect, not, not that you can't roll out of bed right now and go into a zone state. I'm not saying you can't do that. You can put on a song and in 30 seconds, maybe be in a zone state. So, but I just think that if you add in baseball where there's a lot of dead time, there's a lot of time to think between pitches, between innings, between games, a starting pitcher has five days or seven days to, you know, there's so much opportunity to think unlike hockey or, or football or basketball where things are, are flowing pretty fast. And man, I, I just feel like meditation and mental practice in general is such a key piece to change the default. So that was another way of just saying like what what has, you know, maybe been added to per se from the original. Well, and you talked about reframing earlier. For me, that that's a, a good key piece is reframe, you know, those thoughts that you have, they're going to keep coming. So how do we reframe negative performance or how do we redirect to better thoughts when we have maybe some thoughts that we don't want. And that that's a practice in itself as well is maybe I had a tough outing, go back and, and reframe those pitches that you didn't like, or you gave up a home run and see the guy swing and miss. I, I did that a lot with freshmen when they were having struggles and had them try to reframe maybe a tough outing or a tough plate appearance at the plate and try to have them reframe it to a positive. So redirect into maybe a little bit more positive. And just to add on to that piece, Ryan, is if you don't, and it's something I'm going to say that you said earlier, <laughs> if you don't put the time aside so you can experience both sides, what went wrong or how you were distracted or what you, or how, or what you want to reframe and give yourself a chance to get quiet and be the observer to kind of watch what's going on so that you can reframe it or redirect. Or here's another thing. If I sit down right now for five minutes and focus on being quiet, and then I have 30 thoughts come through my mind about who I have to call in, a, in an hour or where I have to be tonight, uh, or did I say the right thing in the podcast, right? Like, so all this stuff comes up. 
I can practice being what I call neutral, which is a huge piece of meditation to practice it. You know, I can watch it and not, I, I love this analogy, not take the hand of the dancer, not, not pick up the hitchhiker, just, just let them be. It's not right. The thought, by the way, is not right or wrong, as you know, to let it be there. But I can practice now being neutral and then use the key word that I use all the time now, which is redirect. So the thought comes in, well, you got to make a, you got to call a person at one o'clock. You better be prepared to say this or whatever. And, and all I want to do is be quiet so I can practice saying, oh, there's the thought. <clears throat> Watch the thought. Don't engage it. Don't pick up the hitchhiker. Just let it be. Now I've created a new pathway, a new practice of a distraction came in my mind. I saw for what it was. I redirected my attention back to just being quiet, back to my breathing, or in the case of being on a mound, I can redirect my attention back to my focal point, which is the catcher's glove, the E and Easton, if you will, and attacking the glove, which is my process. And going back to something you said, it's very important to put time aside so you can practice reframing. You can practice changing how you respond to things that maybe in a game situation or in life is going to hit you because it's just part of how your mind has been trained to think. And I just think that meditation is really the unlearning, undoing, um, practice of changing that that default. I love the term sitting with it. I mean, and that's mm. a neutral term with Buddhism is, is you're going to sit with it, whether it's positive or negative, you're going to sit with those feelings and thoughts and, and be okay and, and with non-judgment of, of how you're feeling or what you're thinking and, and just having non-judgment with it. Um, you know, I think stoicism has gotten big lately. Amor fati is another term that Stoics use. That's basically love your fate. Um, that whatever life throws at you, that obviously you're going to accept what happens and and then move on. And I think those are some key terms that I've picked up lately that have helped me live a better life as well. Love it, man. It's uh, it's very Taoist, right? The, yes. The Tao, the flow is. You know, I tell us to people all the time. You know. The flow, so to speak, the zone is always happening. It's just a question of, are you distracted out of it? Are you diverted from it? And that way it's more optimistic. I, you know, the other analogy is the sun's always shining. It might be cloudy out and you can't see the sun, but the sun's always shining. And so what you're saying is, and again, Ryan, you're coming back to this idea of practice. You're spending time working on this other part because We've got so much practice at this this other part that we've just got as part of the deal from the time we were one or two years old. And again, it's not right or wrong, but as you said, if we don't spend the time, the contrast to just be with what is and practice being like, oh, I'm with what is right now. And that's part of the flow instead of the, the rumination or the thought comes in and then the response comes in. And then we're, now we're pitching up the hitch, picking up the hitchhikers and now we're kind of on that 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 deal. we talked so. about the what ifs off air you know those are the oh. what ifs the the worrying about the future what's going to happen those are all the what ifs that you get sidetracked by i'm gonna my the next time i sit quiet which hopefully will be right after we get off the phone in fact that's what i will do when we get off our our podcast i'm going to sit and i'm want i want to hear what what ifs come into my mind because i think that is a powerful exercise and thank you for sharing that well tim ferris talks about that like literally write down like the worst thing that could possibly happen like all the things that you're fearful of we all have fears you know and 
he does. He has a he has a, a basically a worst case scenario journal that he keeps, like all the fears that you have, like, and that way you kind of prepare yourself for maybe the worst things that can happen. And that's I think how meditation evolved a little bit with the teams over the years that I coached is that we would factor in some of the bad things that would happen and then see yourself work through those bad things just to give yourself some confidence in between the years that you saw yourself get into a tough spot and then you actually saw yourself get out of that tough spot because the game of baseball, there's going to be good and bad things that happen in a nine-inning game. And so how you handle the the goods and the bads um, going to be the most important thing. So like see a bad thing happen and then see yourself get through it as well. But yeah, the 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 worst case scenario I think is a great way to attack it as well because then it, it doesn't make it as bad. Yeah, and I just to just to add to that that part, I have not done much of it. I did some of it, but it is powerful. It, it's sort of in the world of systematic desensitization. It's the same idea of you know you put yourself in a threatening situation or or maybe seeing yourself doing something wrong as you said, and then correct it. Um, and yes, it's just a. But look, isn't it interesting? We're not talking about uh, mechanics and how you squared up a ball or how you gripped your, your breaking ball. You know, we're talking about mental practice, and I and I hope going forward, you know, it's something I think I've said at the last two breakouts of the ABCA shows um, at the hot stove is that, you know, meditation, mental practice in general. Um, I, I just believe is the next frontier because the mental game is getting a lot of love now, of course, but it's the practice and it's something you and I have hit hard, which I love. And it's, yes, I love talking about the process. And I love talking about committing to the process and strategic stuff about the game, but we got to really undo this, you know, or, or change this default. And, and I'm glad that we, uh, I knew it, there's no way we weren't going to meander to the mental game, right? So I'm glad I'm glad you brought the book and started this because it's I know look this helps me talking about it out loud too. So the conversation is the the best part of that, and it always I always feel better. I that's why I love talking about it. I always feel better no matter what's going on in in my personal life or in work. When you have these conversations, you're always going to feel better. And players are no different. You know the the conversation and the practice part of it. It it makes things better for them on the field and it makes things better for them away from the field. Hey, I had a side note question here for any entrepreneurs that are listening in, because I, I feel like you're extremely successful. What are your, what are your biggest, biggest challenges? Like when you first got going, what were your biggest challenges to, to being an op- entrepreneur and starting a business? Well, again, you can't say something so nice to me without me thanking you. <laughs> um, look, I'm going to answer that question maybe a a different way, a unique way. Um, I was too busy to worry about failure. And I don't mean that. That sounds actually a little bit almost egotistical. I don't mean it that way. I don't take it that way because if you're so worried about it, you probably don't get started, right? Yeah. Let me say it a different way. Yeah, that could happen. You could be, you know. It's the start that always gets people. Yeah, for me, uh, maybe the best way to answer the question is this way. And I'll kind of get to your, your question is, I was so inspired and driven by, I went through a difficult time at Cal State Northridge that I basically had to leave the team. It was all mental. Um, and 
through my study of psychology, I switched my major. And then I got really, as, as we've talked about, heavy, heavy into meditation, heavy into Zen and Taoism. And that really, that, that hit me. Like the psychology for me was really helpful too, but the, the meditation, the Zen, boy, it just altered my life. And I felt like um, I really wanted to share you know, this experience with people, how I went from such a tough place and, and the things and tools that, you know, helped get me through it. Obviously, people were there to help me out too. And um, I was so driven to get this information out. And then you can, you could say the same thing happened with throwing and long toss, um, yoga. I got into yoga in the mid 90s. And that became a huge part of our camp and training as well. Um, band work, you know, the bands really didn't come around for us until I met Perry Husband in like 94, maybe. And so I would say that everything that I got into, shout out Perry Husband, by the way. Um, hi, Perry. Everything that I, I fell into, starting with the mental game, honestly, in meditation, um, I was so driven to share what I felt like was really going to help. And look, yes, it, it really made a a profound impact in my life but but of course as i started teaching it to people and seeing the feedback that obviously feeds your 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 conviction and your faith and um and positive reinforcement man it's just like anything you're throwing stuff out there and you're getting positive feedback from it you're like okay we got something here i'm passionate about it which you are and i am as well but you get positive feedback from the people that you're working with it does show you that hey you're onto something here yeah, and I think that's the way to answer your question, really, is that I I just felt so convicted. I, I wasn't thinking about anything else except how many people can I share this with? And I, I guess I was on this unconscious mission. You know, it's like you're just channeling. You don't even know it, obviously. And I was just so moved to share and teach and get the word out, so to speak. And so that's why I didn't. And look, I, I did this at a time there wasn't an Internet. Right. So um, so and I think in a way that helped me because I I had to grind. I had to, you know, talking mental game in 1990 or 92 or 94. Um, let's just say it wasn't as well received as it is now. And so you had to really stand your ground and take a lot of no's and, and, and pound on a lot of doors. And, and I think that it strengthened me and strengthened my resolve. But at the end of the day, I, I guess to answer your question now, I would say that um, it's always to me going to come down to um, that purpose, that inspiration, and and also the tenacity. And, and I mean tenacity in a very healthy way. You're driven. You're, you're, you're driven by your inspiration. You're driven by your purpose. And also tenacity, meaning perseverance, that I don't, I don't care if I get 99 no's before I get my first yes. It doesn't matter. I, I believe in what I've been fortunate enough to be given or channeling through. And, and I can say that honestly without an ego. I just feel like <clears throat> this is my path. And this conviction is just overwhelmingly strong. And, um, and so my advice, circling back to your question, is, is that... Um, Number one, make sure, I mean, if you really believe in something, just keep moving forward. There's no, there's no no's. There's no amount of no's that are going to dissuade you. And it's also a test to you how much you believe in what you're doing. 
because if you do get no's early on, because it is a new product or a new idea or a new whatever, um, it doesn't bother you at all. You just, you literally keep moving forward. I, I don't want to say it doesn't bother you at all, but you know what I mean? You just, you hear it, it goes in one out the other. And so I think those are my, my main ones. It's inspiration, purpose, um, perseverance, tenacity, open, open-mindedness is another one. Just constantly being open. Um, but man, it's just that internal drive and conviction that you just feel it. And, um, and I still don't, I don't remember how I got the copy of getting focused, staying focused. I don't know if I mailed a check-in and I was going to ask you that. And say it's 1996. Somebody wanted to get a set of J bands. Like, did they mail you a check? Did you have, were you selling them out of the trunk of your car? Or like, how did somebody get a set of J bands back in the, the early days? Believe it or not, I'd, I'd say it's probably word of mouth. Yeah. That's baseball. That's the baseball community. It's word of mouth. It had to be, yeah, it had to be word of mouth because it was, uh, oh, well, I'll tell you what did help. I started writing for collegiate baseball. Um, I can't even remember, but let's call it 96, 7, somewhere in there. And Lou, shout out to Lou Pavlovich. Lou, Lou is just, you talk about a godsend at a time when I was, you know, first starting out. He not only gave me a forum to talk about, long toss and throwing but early on he was wide open to everything he loved the mental game i mean we i, I probably have done 10 12 articles with either written or with lou uh, on in collegiate baseball so that 2002 or three i spoke at the abca um and that was a huge deal and we had a booth for the first time um and i think yeah, even though the internet was maybe coming around and you could have technically probably bought from us online at that point, um, I just think that a lot of it was just, you know, it's how Dave Matthews band started, right? They just, you start with the your lo local town. And I'm not, I'm not trying to compare our, my, myself or us to Dave Matthews, but I love that story. He just, yep. he just did the local thing, the local thing. And Charlottesville, Virginia. What was that? He was Charlottesville, Virginia, UVA. Like that's what he was doing. He's hitting the clubs in, in Charlottesville, and that's kind of how he got going. Hey, my yeah. initial my initial introduction to and and God bless my dad. I had a little league coach, John McCauley, who had coached with my dad. So we did a dynamic warm-up. This is in the mid-80s. So we had a dynamic dynamic warm-up. We were doing the Throwers 10 program, so the job exercises with tennis cans filled with mm. sand. That was my introduction to arm care exercises pre and prehab. It was before we started throwing. We did all of those because my dad must have picked it up at the convention. We were doing the Job's exercises that Dr. Andrews and Dr. Job uh, developed with the Tommy John surgery. That's what we did prehab throwing wise was with tennis cans filled with sand that had tape around them. That's what we were doing before we would play catch. And I never had any arm issues. Well, God bless your dad too, by the way. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I played in the, the Jayhawk league in 86 or 87. It was the first time, cause I was pretty much a, I mean, I threw all the time. I played sports all the time. So I was more in competitive mode and I wasn't much thinking about training. I didn't want to learn. I didn't, that's another reason why I didn't stay up. I'm not a huge mechanical guy. I've always been more of a feel instinct guy. And uh, hey, let me ask you: Did you play against Andy Bennis? He's an old Jayhawk League guy. He played. He pitched at Clarinda. You may not even. Uh, no, the only guy I can remember that was in the league at the time was David Segee. 
Um, Andy Bennis might have. I think 87. I think his summer in Clorinda is 87 because 88 was the year he was the first pick of the draft. And that's, uh, I think 87 was the year he was at Clorinda. Okay. Um, but uh, 86 was the first year our pitching coach brought out tennis cans with sand in them. Yeah. And, I, and, to, and, and, and I'm ashamed to say this, but I was like, I just give me the ball. You know, I, I just wasn't so much, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reps guy. And I get that probably from my, my dad as much as anybody. I'm a reps guy. I, I can hit a tennis ball against the wall for, I used to shoot baskets for three hours a day when I came home from school. Well, it's a good example of the two differences. You get introduced when you're in college. I got introduced when I was a little kid, so I didn't think it was weird at all. And with any of this stuff, the, the earlier we can get all of it implemented with kids, then they're in those routines where it's not, it's not weird. And that's any of it. Meditation, breathing, J-bands, you know, probably lower volume plyo throws. You're not going to do the heavier ones with the little guys, but the reverse throws, I mean, they could reverse throw a baseball um, for the little guys without adding a lot of weight on it. You could get them into the proper habits with everything that are going to carry over into proper, ha- proper habits when they're older. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the bottom line is that was 86. It was, a t- it was, you know, there was sand in a tennis can <laughs> and he wanted us to do these exercises which turns out to be they were probably job exercises and they were probably unbelievably good but it's funny how it came full circle i went from someone who was resistant to that and all of a sudden you know perry i met perry husband and he was he called them the wife slaters back in the day um and that from that moment on now i have now looked at you know, forms of training is like, okay, these are gifts, man. These are like, these are, this is a huge deal. And like you said, look, the bottom line is the earlier you can get kids into this, so it's the new normal. I also have told, I, I, I hope one day I've said this a million times that starting in elementary school, kids need to learn how to just breathe and be quiet and, and visualize and do imagery and just, I don't care, you call anything you want for five minutes a day for each period we're going to play a mental game of just quiet or breathe, or we're going to count our breath to 20 and back. And I just think, man, that earlier you can get kids into anything, but especially breathing, meditation, stuff like that. But yes, it's kind of cool how I was so resistant in 86. So 86 already sounds like it. 86 didn't sound that long ago, by the way. It it doesn't seem that long though. Right? Like I think back, I'm like, ah, it's not that long. And then it's like, oh, that was 30 years ago. Like it seems like it was yesterday, but it was 30 years ago. It's hey, my daughter, my daughter brought up the term manifesting the other day. I was like, okay, she's starting to get it. Like she, she threw it out there. She goes, I'm manifesting. I'm like, okay, my daughter, Nora is starting to get it. Yeah. Yeah. She's starting to understand. That's sweet. By the way, you said with the younger, you said with the reverse throwing, the heavier ball with the younger kids. Well, no, that that obviously I'm not recommending you know any of the the overload stuff for young young kids, but oh, you could have them reverse throw a five ounce ball just to get oh, in the yeah. habit of doing a reverse throw. Um, totally. You know, you get Larry a little bit with some of the overload stuff before they're ready, but there's nothing wrong with getting them into some of the habits with some of the the plyo throws with just a lighter ball just to get into the idea of of this is what you do to get ready to throw. 
hundred percent because along those lines, we get questions all the time, you know, how early should we start kids on J bands? And I'm like, well, probably eight ish is, you know, they're kind of ready. I said, but even if they're not getting a ton of benefit yet, even though they'll get some like muscle balance and, you know, but, but we always bring up the same point you just made, but let's get them in the habit. Get them in the habit. Like, it's normal. For sure. You know, you and I talked last week and you're getting ready to go throw batting practice. So I was telling you, you know, when, when we got the J bands and I'm going through the circuit and we got the plow balls and I, I wanted to learn the exercises so I could teach our guys. Um, but then that had benefit as my arm felt better than it had in forever. And when you throw enough BP or you're throwing all the time, like your arm's going to get ragged out. So you know, we implemented it with everybody. It wasn't just the pitchers. We implemented it with everybody. And so I do recommend coaches to stay on the exercises as well, because you're going to be expected to throw as long as you coach baseball, you're gonna to have to throw baseball. So I, I implemented that with the coaches too. like, Hey, one for teaching your guys and learning the exercises, but for your arm health as well, you won't have any issues then either. Well, look, man, I, I play tennis three, four times a week. I do my J-band workout. Um, you know, I don't do every exercise, but I do do all of my throwing, you know, sir, you know, exercises for my right arm per se, but I'm religious about it. And to going back to your BP point, um, I, I can't imagine where my arm would be for someone that doesn't throw a baseball rarely anymore without my band exercise. Tennis helps too. I do a ton of reps forehand and backhand and, and some overheads. So my, my shoulder, I got to admit from tennis does stay in good shape, but I mean, Hey, is like, that a way to deload? Is playing tennis a way to deload? Yeah, you could, I, well, tennis would be, well, I think anything you could do that would be lower impact. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know what the, experts say on swimming anymore all i know is i i'm a, I'm a Pisces i thought a i thought swimming was great for recovery for for throwers uh, I, I i still think it's it's great just yeah even if you don't do technically the 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 the, the, the traditional strokes that maybe there are an issue with man you could do forward and reverse flies You're getting resistance in the water it's so good for recovery it's so good man but but look i just wanted to reinforce what you said i really believe a if you're going to teach it do it for sure but b as you just said it, it doesn't matter if it's little league or the major leagues you're probably throwing as, as long as you even even when you're retired you want to still play with your grandkids or whatever so um for five to you know it's probably more like eight to ten minutes but for if you if you went a little fast for five to ten minutes a day, the, the payoff, if you knew, if you had a crystal ball and you saw what the payoff would be, not only with your experience day to day of throwing, but where you'll be 10, 20, 30 years from now, uh, you would sign up in a heartbeat. I, I, I cannot agree with you more about that, Ryan. It, it, it is one of those things. Now, look, if you throw three, 400 pitches every day, like some of the BP pitchers do, and you're doing that five, six days a week in a weird kind of way, because they are low impact volume throws, which is what we love in general. Um, I can see where, yeah, we still want you to do band work, but you're kind of doing bands in your arm every day, a lot of, because you're doing low impact throws and, and you kind of maybe get away with it. But for those, even even that extreme example, I would say, well, man, use at least three weeks leading up to your first BP outings 
to just start crushing your bands yeah. because boy, that'll make such a difference when you hit the ground running. Well, and speaking of Kyle Bodie, Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, has his own podcast now, and it's more like a TV show because it's a, kind of a mini series. But this mini series is on coaching, and so the the title of the episode is Data Coach. But he he was a high school pitcher, and he said it. He goes, I, I still can't sleep on my right arm, you know, his pitching arm. You know, he even said it. You know, Michael Lewis was like, I can't sleep on my right arm. I still have issues with it from from pitching. Um, but, you know, when you said that, like the health, arm health, it reminded me of that. Um, we talked a little bit off camera with just on the youth side because this is really good from a tournament setting. What are the differences for you between keeping track of innings and keeping track of pitch count? Ooh, always going to be pitches. Um, and in a perfect world, which I know it's, we're not maybe quite set up for that. Maybe one day we will with sensors, but you know, then there's always the high stress pitches versus non-stress pitches, which is a huge deal, by the way, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. And, and I think that's pretty common now, but, um, but I just think we have to always break it down to pitches because pitches is like, it gives you a black and white window into what exactly is happening. Innings could be so ambiguous as we know. And so I would just say, number one, always center around pitching. Number two, in our year-round throwing manual, I have like, it's like three inches long. It's, it's the most basic, yet I think clear, concise, and I can't say perfectly foolproof because then, you know, I might get sued, but no. We might get sued, but um, it basically gives you the most simple formula where if you just stick to this formula, it would be really be hard to put your arm in harm's way. I'll give it to you. That's how quick it is. <laughs> Free. You don't have to buy the manual now. One to 15 pitches. You have 24 hours off, period. Now, I know in a perfect world, if you threw an inning on Tuesday, you could throw an inning on Wednesday. You could. But, then, but now you have to figure out what's happening Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But, but just... Stay with me for, I'm sorry, you were going to say something? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm right with you because it's one hour of rest for every pitch competitively they throw. Like, that's a decent range. It's simple math, but I'm, I'm right there with you on it. Right. Okay, one, one, one day, 24 yeah. hours. I know what you meant. If you break the 30-pitch plateau, it's 48 hours. Okay. Now, technically, if you threw, it's that's why it's not a perfect science because someone can say, well, if I threw 30 pitches on a Tuesday – then you're saying Friday I can pitch again, but that doesn't mean you can throw nine innings or whatever. Here we are with innings. Sorry. doesn't mean you can throw 90 pitches. Um, you maybe could, but let, let's just, we'll come back to in a second. If you, the idea is that if you break 30 pitches, you have at least two days off to theoretically do something that's reasonable, which maybe could be another two or three innings. Three, if you break 45 pitches, there's nothing to think about. That's Tuesday. That means you have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So you can't get on a mound until Saturday. Yes. Now, theoretically, someone can say, well, I can do 45 pitches on Tuesday. According to your model, I can throw 90 pitches on Saturday. Of course, we wouldn't want you doing that. But could you throw another 45 pitches? Maybe more like 30, but I guess possibly. But anyway, it depends where they hire low stress pitches on Tuesday. But, but we're almost done here. And it, and much different than throwing a bullpen or throwing to a batter. Correct. Way different. Correct. Great, great point. Okay, so now we're at the last one. Now you break 60 pitches. To me, you are officially on a starter's cycle now, which is 
four days. So that's 96 hours. So technically Tuesday means Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so Sunday you can throw again. Now, now that technically would be maybe an inning or two or three. Sorry, I messed that up. Cause now that we're at four days, technically you're in a position to maybe start again. Yep. Um, so long story short is if you follow that plan, no matter what you is, maybe I need to add one thing to it, which is unless you get to that five day cycle, whatever amount of pitches you threw, you can, that, I, I, that should be an addendum now. I, I just learned something new today. You can't exceed that. So if you throw three, 45 pitches on a Tuesday, I guess technically three days from then you're okay to cap out at 45 pitches, but you can't exceed it. But my point is this, it just start there. There's obviously so many variables that make this very ambiguous and you can still hurt someone if you follow this plan, if you on the, on the back end abuse that. But, the, but at least what it will do is we'll always save somebody from, from doing that 60 pitches or 75 pitches on a Tuesday and then coming back on a Wednesday or Thursday. What do you say to the the parent or the coach of a 12-year-old kid who comes to you and says, well, my son tells me he feels fine? It, I, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Nothing matters. Look, I'm glad he feels fine. That means his arm care program is working. It means his throwing is working. Um, and maybe if he's 18 or 20, we can have a different conversation. But as you know, Ryan, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. It, you just have to, you have to, uh, you know, you have to take charge, even though our number one principle of our throwing program is listen to your arm. And we, so we do empower the athlete. So in a way we should listen to the athlete, but the younger kids, you just have to um, assume that even if they say that. Um, well, I, I know how I was that age. If I had an adult ask me like, are you fine? Yeah, I'm fine. Of course you're going to say you're fine because you don't want to let the adult down. You don't want to let your teammates down. And, Look, man, I, you've probably seen me tweet this a million times. One arm, one career. It, it, what people don't understand, and maybe this will be a, a good nugget to take away. You could spend countless hours doing everything right to get into great shape and then just do one little thing wrong. Like I threw 70 pitches on a Friday at a tournament and I was shut down for sure. We ran out of pitching. We can win the championship. Coach says, can you go one inning? Of course I can go one inning. But that day is the day that might get you landed on a doctor's table. Because even though, of course, in your mind, you could throw that inning because you can adrenaline through it, or maybe you just don't want to let the team down, it's 100%. You should not be taking the mound. And we can debate this if it's Rich Hill, and you know, or someone that's in the seventh game of the World Series that's 38 or 39 years old. This is like a quote he had where, as it turns out, he's still pitching more, but it, it might have been his last chance. To, I'm just using the analogy. It could be the last chance for someone to win a World Series or someone's at the end of their career and it's a perfect game. And normally you'd say, shut him down. But he's like, look, I'm done anyway. My career is over. Okay, if, I guess if you're there, we can debate that that's – reasonable. <laughs> and I always ran into it in summer ball. You know, when I was a young coach, uh, I'd have to coach in the summers to make money. And my goal was to make sure I sent the guys that I was coaching from other colleges back to college healthy. But Joe Thatcher pitched for me 
one summer who had a journeyman left-handed career, pitched for a long time in the big leagues. He was our closer. He only threw 17 innings that entire summer and had 17 saves. But he went back-to-back days, and that third day we're playing, I'm like, Joe, don't put your spikes on today. He goes, Coach, what do you mean? Well, we get in a tight game, and we take a lead late, and I look down, and he's starting to put his spikes on. And I'm like, Joe, what are you doing? He goes, Coach, I got a chance to get another save. I'm like, no, I told you you're not putting your spikes on today. And he was furious with me, but I was like, Joe, I'm not sending you back to Indiana State hurt. Like, that's one of my responsibilities to your coaches that are coaching you at college is to make sure you show up healthy. Like, I'm not I'm not running your risk for you. I'm going to be the adult in the room here, even though you're a college kid, and I'm sure you felt fine, and you're only going an inning at a time, but I'm not taking that chance for you and ruining your career. Um, and he pitched forever. He was with the Padres for a long time. Padres and D-backs is oh, mostly yeah. he he'd come in and get a left-handed batter out of game like that's what he was he had his niche left-handed career he's like john franco oh he would and, and by the way he would call you one day and say to you thank you you know thank you because maybe that was the day that we were just talking about and we don't know this and maybe 99 percent of the time he would have been fine but that one percent if you just said, man, this is an important game. This gets us into the playoffs. And he's just telling you like 50 different ways, coach, I promise you I'm fine. And he gets hurt. It, what, what's, was it worth it? I mean, exactly. no, of course not. And we're getting a blend now with as many college guys that are going to the pro level. But what do you feel like the biggest difference between professional coaching and college coaching is right now? Well, luckily – in my opinion, it comes back to collaboration, and I think that they're both thriving, which is, <clears throat> to me, the best-case scenario. And I, I, I love the fact that um, college coaches have been doing their thing. The pro people have been doing their thing. There's obviously been an interchange of, of communication, but it's been nothing. I mean, I've been doing this 30 years. The last three years, I mean, I'd say the last five to seven for sure, but the last three years, Two years. Uh, what, what inspires me and makes me feel so good is how collaborative, I'll get that word, hopefully, um, this has become. And it's just powerful. Um, and, and it, it, you know, obviously, professional people now are <clears throat> more than ever hiring college coaches. They're hiring people from driveline. They're hiring people like Max Wiener. <clears throat> and and to me, I just think it's, uh, it's a blessing for the whole community because I think that we're, we're now, I'm not saying there was ever like us against them. I don't mean it that way at all, but I just feel like it, it's maybe it's just been a natural kind of thing. Like we're the pro world, you're the college world or the amateur world. And, and I just love it now. It's, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, man. We're sharing information. It comes down to the kids. We're trying to optimize the kids' development and futures. And so, of course, we should be sharing with each other. And I don't think there was maybe an intention to not share. I just think that's like the internet. It's like it's evolution, and and it uh, it inspires me now to see how cool that this has become collaborative. And you've worked with some great arms. When you're talking to those guys, what are some of the characteristics of the the best coaches that they've worked with? Are I would just say stuff I talked about earlier: purpose, passion. Um, um, attention to detail, open mind. There it is again. 
open-mindedness, adaptability, communication. Maybe there are some words I didn't use earlier that I get to sneak in now. You know, communication. Um, I, I just think that the best coaches in, in the world, to me, are the ones that are just so open-minded and so interested in collaborating. There's that word again. Uh, it's not so much like, hey, here's how we do things. There's nothing wrong with, not, with sharing things that have proven well over the years. That's why you got to where you're at as a coach. But I, I tweeted something yesterday. I wish I could remember it exactly, but it was from the Bruce Lee special, 30 for 30. Yeah, what'd you think of it? I was going to ask you, what'd you think of the Bruce Lee special? I'm an hour and a half. I, I can't give you the full answer. Well, first of all, I love it, but... I have another half an hour to go, believe it or not. I thought it so. came at a right time with what's going on with the racism oh. stuff right now, because you don't think about that with the, you know, the internment camps for the Asian community in the United States. Like you don't think about that and and how the Asian community was brought here. Like you don't think about those things. So I, I was glad that they brought light of that because it's something that most people probably didn't understand. To me, you hit the nail on the head, Matt, because as I'm watching this with what's going on, I'm just thinking it's so important that they're sharing light on the fact that, that this is across races in general. And, and yes, right now it's it's definitely about Black Lives Matter and all that, but I think, as you said, it was so powerful to see the Asian community and how, how they were affected. And even last night on CNN, I saw there was a, there's a, there's an Asian, a uh, doctor who is it with uh, on with um, um, blanking on Anderson Anderson Cooper. Cooper. He's on all the time, and she's so sophisticated and so sweet and bright and and caring. And she was talking about how Asian doctors are like patients. Uh, some patients have spit on them, and you you know go back to whatever. Like don't you can't take. And I just I can't even like. I can't comprehend this. These are caretakers that are, and, and then the other thing is on 60 Minutes, I saw, um, I'm, I'm blanking Greenwood, I'm blanking the name of the town in Tulsa. That, that, that actually hurt my heart. That, yes, that, that whole story of that town being burned down is, um, is very, it's sad. Like the whole, the yeah. whole story is, is sad that something like that could possibly happen. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, it is sad, and, and, and fortunately, I think, uh, I clearly echo, I think, the world now, but this is a paradigm shift that has more teeth in it than ever before, thank God, and um, you can feel it. You know, this is, this is one I, I, I pray and feel strongly about is, it, it, like, the, the horse is out of the barn, if you will, like, to where the momentum to me is so strong and the awareness is lifted and all these things you see like with Bubba Wallace and I, it is it, sad and frustrating and gut-wrenching as is on one level it's obviously now becoming inspiring and and but now the, there's just still a lot of work to be done but um yeah it's part of continuing the conversation we had conversations the last two weeks on the podcast that were emotional for me talking about it um, with the guys that came on. And I appreciate Carrick and Juan and Blake and Edwin and, and Kenny Fullman coming on. And Kenny came at it from a, a very different perspective because he's been with the Chicago police, police Department for 25 years. And there are a lot of things he can't get into with the Chicago PD, but he brought a, a different light to things. And I got emotional 
during those two talks because you'd like to think that we're in 2020 and and we should be better but we're not and that's a sad thing but hopefully again we can continue the conversation going and it's not one of those hot and bother things where it's it's one of these quick hitters where everybody's gets emotional and then it goes away hopefully we can continue to keep going and hopefully with the younger generation they can continue things going and and alleviate a lot of what's going on as well amen buddy Back to coaching here. Who is your favorite coach as a player and why? Well, my dad is first and foremost. You know, um, I was thinking about this this morning about my dad was not just a great baseball coach. <clears throat> he was just a great coach. And he also was a great emulator of discipline. And as I mentioned earlier, reps, you know, he'd be the guy that would go down to the range or go in the backyard and hit wiffle balls, you know, with his golf club for, for hours or putt for hours and study the swing. And, uh, um, you know, he took us out as kids all the time down the street to the park to, to take batting practice with my brother and sister. And, um, and he was a coach, a baseball coach of mine for, uh, when I was younger. So I just think ultimately, you know, he's, he's had a, a massive influence uh, on me and, do you have a moment that if you could go back and change one thing, do you have a moment in time where you'd go back and change one thing? I, I really can't say I do because... From That's a Dallas, awesome, by the way. Yeah, from a, from a Dallas point of view, you know, everything happens as it's supposed to happen. And so for me, that's my path. I guess I could say uh, if I enter the the human capacity for a second and say, well, what, what, what would Alan have wanted to do differently? I, I probably could come up with some, some things that maybe I wish I did a little differently, but I would just say that, um, no, I think the way life has gone so far, it's, it's exactly how it's supposed to be. Do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something along the way that you felt like was maybe going to train wreck you, but looking back now was one of the best things that happened to you? Yeah. My, uh, experience, uh, in college when I had to leave the team and, uh, you know, my dream, like any other kid that wanted to be a major league baseball player growing up, that was my, I would say I, I, that was my dream. And so in a way I had to walk away from that dream. And at the time, it, you know, it was, it was tough, but it got me on my path of meditation and mental game and, spirituality and so i feel like it's one of the it's just truly one of the greatest blessings and silver linings in my life what are some final thoughts final thoughts is gonna you know for me will be two one we'll, we'll start with the the mental game which is um i and i'm speaking to myself as much as anybody but i just feel like uh, making time to be quiet making time to let go of stuff, making time to change the default and, and really making time to navigate what we're going through right now. Um, I just think is paramount really to take time to, to breathe, be quiet, relax. Uh, Google's guided meditations. We have free ones on YouTube. We have free ones on our website. Um, and so I think that would be my, my you know, being positive, really focusing on positivity through this um, support, stuff like that. Um, and then on a throwing side, a baseball side, um, 
I just would keep it very simple, which is, you know, your arm is your lifeline as a baseball player. I don't care if you're a DH. I mean, technically, I guess you could. It's still hard to get to become a DH without being able to touch throw a baseball. But maybe at 37 years or 30, you become a DH. But I just say this, man, your, your arm is your lifeline as a player physically. Um, the, I'll use it uh, from a tweet yesterday, you know, take care of your arm so it can take care of you. And I just think that um, the arm, here's how I like to end it. Your arm is a treasure chest. And we don't know how much gold and silver and money is in there. But there could be a lot. And let's find out. And to me, the way to find out is to nurture it and treat it well and spend the time with arm care and spend the time getting out and throwing and doing your research on the best ways to get your arm in shape and to not fall for some of these things that we've talked about today. And I just think that um, those would be maybe two two key points. Kevin Love, uh, Inc., um, that's one of the Twitter business uh, profiles that I follow, but Kevin Love had a interview on there that he was talking about tenacity, but he gave like his five sleep tips and he battled anxiety, you know, at the, the prime of his career, he had an, a panic attack during a game and had to pull himself out. So for anybody that, that hasn't seen that video, it was great. He talked about resiliency, tenacity, but then at the height of his career, having to figure out why he was having panic panic attacks and what he did to alleviate those. So that was very insightful. I was glad I saw it this past weekend. So Alan, I appreciate you coming on. I've always enjoyed our talks and I uh, can't thank you enough. Hey, me too. And, and I, I appreciate you, what you do on behalf of the ABCA, but what you do on behalf of you. And um, it's a privilege and honor, as I said earlier, to be on. And, um, and just... If I don't, if you don't mind, the last thing I just wanted to add because of what you said with Kevin Love is our VP, China McCartney has, again, I mentioned earlier, um, it's a free resource, AAA D, anxiety against, um, athletes against anxiety and depression. And, uh, and I just think with what's going on now, it's apropos to, you know, just to remind everybody out there to reach out. And I, I needed in March, I desperately needed support and help. And um, I just think it's, we're all human, as you said, and um, I think it's important to reach out and lean on people and, and, and be open. Now, hopefully you and I are in the same place where we can go watch a 10,000 Maniacs concert or Natalie Merchant. So for the anybody off air, Alan and I were talking about music and he's got a poster of Natalie Merchant behind him, So, which I'm a huge fan of. So I love talking about music. So thank you for that. That was enjoyable. Yeah, well, what people don't know is we, we had a 45-minute start <laughs> on the music Instead of prepping the show with a bunch of baseball stuff, we had a 45-minute music prep. Yep. Perfect. Best way. So, love it. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. I hope Alan and I shed some light on arm health and mental health. Uh, If you don't have the year-round throwing manual, I urge you to pick it up. Uh, That and the J-Band program will allow any thrower at any level to stay healthy. I'm also glad that he brought up Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression. Uh, That website is aaadf.org. Whether your athletes are talking about it or not, you more than likely have an athlete on your team that is dealing with anxiety or depression. Please let your athletes know that you're there for them and there are resources out there for them to help.
This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Oh